Reading Aloud is back. Welcome. My name's Nate Cordry. I'm the host of this podcast. Thank you so much for downloading it and putting it into your brain. Uh, we have a really fun show today. We're, we're covering so many things today. We're getting into all kinds of different conversations. So this this show is like the perfect mishmash of things. It's great. We're all we're running the gamut, as they say. Um, first, I want to say thank you to my guests on the last podcast. We had an amazing book club for Tenders the Night, uh, the F. Scott Fitzgerald novel we read, which was so good and really moving and sad, but beautiful too, and of a time. Uh, who is here? Oh, Lindsey Craft, Susanna Fogel, Mike Still. They were great, and they all had really great points of view, and they were all new to the book club, so they were very nervous. And But they came in with such enthusiasm, and they were really excited to talk about the book. And it's really fun to hear my book club pals say to me, I would have never read this had I not been asked to do this book club. So it forced their brains to do some some work, which was great. And they had a great time. So it's the previous episode, episode 18, is the Tenders the Night book club. So check that out. Uh, whether or not you've read the book, it's, it's a really fun discussion. And also, uh, the live show is coming up in a week. The next live show, another amazing lineup. Manzukis, John Daly, uh, who else? Sam Richardson is making his debut, as is Mike Rock. Lindsey Kraft, who is here for the book club, is going to be performing as well. Uh, Darcy Carden. Um, there's an amazing array of uh, comedians and improvisers coming down to read stuff for you at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater on Franklin. That is Sunday, May 10th at 7.30 p.m. Five bucks. Come down. Check it out. You'll enjoy it. And the first piece for this week's uh, podcast is from the live show from uh, March. Faye Wolf read an amazing piece written by Susanna Fogel, also of last week's book club, Synergy. It's all happening. It's a really funny piece. Susanna is a brilliant writer. I've known her for a long time. And she had a piece in The New Yorker. And she's putting together this book proposal, these letters, and they're great. There's 10 or 15 different letters from different points of view. And this is one of my favorites. And Faye, I've known, uh, God, forever. I think I met her in 2000 in New York. So I've known her for 15 years. And she's a very dear friend of mine. She's a spectacular talent. She has. She's one of those women that can do everything. She's an actor. She's a comedian. She's a writer. She's a musician. Um, and then she has this whole other side of her life where she does organizing. She's this unbelievable professional organizer. She has, she's like a, what are those knives with all the things on it? Cody, what's a knife with all the things that come out of the knife? Serrated. What? Serrated. That's a serrated knife. I'm thinking of the knife they have in your pocket and you can open things with it and you can start a fire with it and you can pick Leatherman. your... Yeah. Thank you so much. The Swiss. The Swiss made a knife and it does a bunch of things. And Fay Wolf is like a Swiss army knife. Here she is. Hi, everyone. This is a piece by Susanna Fogel, who's here. And I must tell you the name. Your intrauterine device has some thoughts on your love life. IUD. IUD. Hey, lady. What's up? I hope it's okay that I'm reaching out to slash from you like this. 
I, I know you've been saying in therapy that you want to improve communication with those closest to you. At least I think that's what you said. I can only hear your sessions clearly on the days you're wearing skirts. <laughs> what does Dr. Fleming look like, BT Dub? I just keep picturing Lorraine Bracco. <laughs> anyway, obviously you and I have a pretty intimate relationship since you literally trust me with your life. <laughs> slash preventing new ones. <laughs> on a daily basis. Or let's be honest, not, not daily. <laughs> Every two months-ish. More since your last birthday. <laughs> it's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about. So, real talk. Maybe it's just a view from where I'm sitting, hashtag your lower cervix. <laughs> but it seems like ever since you turned 32, you've been lowering your standards for sexual partners. Now, granted, I, I, only, know, I only know the part of the story since I only see the one part of them, but I think, I, I think it's safe to say I know you better than you know yourself. And I, I like to think I'm pretty observant about the outside world in general, even though I'm internal by nature. My point is, I, I can tell you're selling yourself short. Like that guy Ryan you met on Tinder who said you were his first Tinder date, and then he suddenly took himself off Tinder after your second date, but you didn't feel like you could ask him about it on your third date because it was too early. But then he disappeared anyway for two weeks, and when he finally resurfaced, he claimed he'd been in Buenos Aires and forgot his phone charger. They didn't have the right converters for American chargers or something. <laughs> Seriously? I could not have agreed more with the eight friends you called for advice. <laughs> that you should not get drinks with him again. <laughs> but you did. And by extension, so did I. And what happened later that night can only be described as a violation of both of our dignities. Not to be all, I told you so, but I knew neither of us was ever going to see him again. Oh, or, or that bike messenger you met at the cha-cha lounge the night before your birthday. I, I don't think I caught his name, but I definitely heard him use the word sarcastical and, <laughs> and discuss how much money he saved the year he lived in a storage unit and took all his showers at the gym. I know you were really drunk that night, and 32 is a weird age to be turning. I remember you talking to Dr. Fleming about that. But still, dude... You have a master's. You have so much going for you. And you're probably beautiful. At least you are on the inside. And okay, I wasn't gonna bring this up, but can we talk about what happened with your ex-boyfriend last week? I know I never met Ben when you guys were dating because you just used condoms then, but he seems like such a nice guy and obviously he's still totally in love with you. I know Amy's wedding weekend was really emotional, but I still feel like sleeping with him, knowing he was just gonna get super invested again, was kinda cruel. To him and to me, cause, cause not to be a martyr here, but it's like his entire life force was trying to put a baby in you. <laughs> Both times. I was like a goalkeeper at the fucking World Cup for you that night. And then I woke up feeling sad for all three of us. Anyway, you get the point I'm trying to make here, and I really hope this doesn't feel like an attack. I know I have a reputation for being cold and sterile. And a lot of people have said that it really hurts to let me in. 
related, would you mind asking Dr. Fleming for advice on how I can stop going into a WebMD Yahoo Answers click hole when I can't sleep? Would totally love her thoughts. But trust me, this is all coming from a place of love. It's not about me at all. Because let's be honest, when you meet the one, you're not going to need me anymore. They'll bury me in some hazardous waste bin in the exam room where we first met next to something slimy. And I'll never get to meet your baby. But it'll all be worth it for me because that's the kind of friend I am. <laughs> Let me know if you want to talk further. I'm always here for slash in you. <laughs> Big heart, Morena. Keith Law is a senior baseball writer at ESPN.com. Before joining ESPN, Keith was a special assistant to the GM of the Toronto Blue Jays. Before that, Keith wrote for Baseball Prospectus. He has a blog that you can find at meadowparty.com where he digs into his main interests outside of baseball, including literature, cuisine, music. He's a Harvard grad, has an MBA from Carnegie Mellon, and he believes in science. I first met I Keith... I think back in 2007, he interviewed me about my yeah. time on, on Studio 60, and I'm glad to return the favor. Keith Law, thanks for joining me. It is a pleasure to be here. It's been a while since we've seen each other. I feel like it was at, um, was that at Fenway Park? Yes, that opening night. Yeah. Which was a while ago, because I, I have moved twice across the country and back since then. So, right. it's, yeah, it's been a while. That's before you moved to Arizona and then subsequently back east to Delaware. Yes, that is correct. I think so that was in, I feel like that was in 2008 or nine. I know Pedroia. Eight or nine, I was going to say nine, something like that. Yeah. It, uh, Somewhere I, around that range. I met your brother, actually. Yes, exactly. Around, you know what it was? Hot Tub Time Machine 1 was about to come out. Oh, wow. Because I remember saying to him, you should tweet about that more. Because that was literally all, his entire Twitter account was, was just tweets about the movie at that point. As it should be. Yeah, of course. Of course. He's doing um, his job. And yes, but I remember specifically saying that to him, and he laughed. I said, I made Rob Corddry laugh. <laughs> that's, a, that is, that's a major life achievement. That's a, yeah, I've yet to do it, but fingers crossed yeah. in 2015 it's going to happen. <laughs> um, this is a, I, feel, I, I remember P Pedroia hit a home run that night. That's what I remember. Mm -hmm. I remember they lost, but they played the Yankees, I think. Because it was yes, Sunday it night was baseball. the Yankees, yes, which was one of those. Cause I remember you guys asked me, are you going to the game? I said, hell no. <laughs> Yankees, Red Sox? I, I mean, that is the, it's like the Roman Coliseum. I, I don't, <laughs> the, every national media is there. The fans are in rare form. Oh, Same would right. be true in the Bronx. I'm not picking on Red Sox fans, although I could. But yeah, anytime there's that much national media there, you will not see me there. I don't, I don't like that scene. Well, I'm much happier when there's, when the press box is, two-thirds full. Um, well, it's this is a podcast about books and, and reading, and that's where I want to start, because I know that you're a prodigious reader. Was that always the case, or did you did a love of reading kind of come later in life? I apparently have been reading since I was two. Wow. I'm taking my parents' word for this, but it was The Mixed Up Chameleon, that the book that I just read so much, I liked it so much, and I kept reading it and reading it and reading it. Huh. And according to my parents, taught myself to read by reading the book so frequently. And they said that we went to my aunt's house and uh, she didn't believe it. She thought I'd memorized the book. So she pulled out other books to test me to see if I was actually able to read. And supposedly I was. Again, this is all like family mythology at this point. Sure. I remember none of this. But I do remember <laughs> like being six or seven or so and reading – you're probably, you probably remember these too. The Moby books, they were abridged classics. So they would take like 
great oh, expectations yeah. Yeah, and yeah, a yeah. widget right. for children with, with pictures on them. Right. I had like 40 of them. Yeah. I mean, still, I remember some of those. Then I've gone back and read some of them as adults, too. And some of them are better. And some of them, it's like, I need the pictures, actually. This is, this is much worse than right. I remembered. Right. But I love those. I just always... I mean, my parents would joke, like, we could always get you through church because we could just give you a book and just tell you to hold it down so nobody could see you reading in the pew. But that's wow. just me. I was the kid who, he could stick a book in my hand and I'd go get lost in it. And it wasn't really until I hit college or so, I started out studying what they called government at Harvard. It's like political science, but it's heavy on political philosophy. And then, so all of a sudden it's like Locke and Rousseau and Mill and Huntington. I'm like, this is horrible. Right. I used to think I liked to read and, you know, I find myself literally falling asleep reading right. these books. And so I got in this period where I stopped reading for a while. And then when I went to join the Blue Jays in 2002, I started traveling much more heavily for work. And I've always been a guy who just, like, I get through flights by reading and yeah. started reading very obsessively again. Now it's like 15 years later and I'm still at it. And I can't imagine not having a book. I was reading with my daughter when, when you called, actually, just now. Oh, God, this is the first time an interview for reading aloud interrupted a father reading with his daughter. Yeah. I mean, can you, like, keep it down? Should we cancel? We should end. I'm reading as I talk to you. <laughs> uh, she'll be fine. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> um, that was my next question. Your work schedule being as busy as it is with you traveling all over the place, you just, you read on planes. That's sort a of lot. where you yeah. catch up. And because you have, there's a lot of dead time. Well, I mean, as anyone listening knows, and you, you fly a lot, you know what it's like. And you've got dead time in the security line. You've got dead time waiting for your flight. You're on the plane. There are definitely times on the plane where even if you want to work, you can't work. So uh, I'm always reading in those situations. And there's a lot of dead time at the ballpark. And if I'm right. at a minor league game and there's nobody there yeah. before first pitch, like I'm not going to go, you can't even go in the clubhouse at those times. So I'll just find a quiet spot up one of the lines and go read for 20 minutes. I find it very, it's, I meditate also to as sort of a way to manage anxiety, but nice. I find reading Good for you. often serves the same purpose. Wow, like yeah. It gets me focused. I've done it in Bristol when I'm going to be on TV and I know the quiet spots, which I'm not going to tell you because I don't want anyone to be able to find me, but of I course. know where to go in the building right. to have 20 minutes to go read for a little bit. And it really... It puts me in a better place mentally. And I mean, I just, obviously, I just love it. I love getting caught in a, caught up, lost in a good book. Yeah. Do, do you have a, I'm assuming you must, you must have a Kindle or uh, whatever yes. the Amazon uh, thing I is. do it on the iPad. Um, on the, the iPad, Kindle right. app for the iPad. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, much more subtle because then it looks like you're working. Right. And you're totally course. just reading like, you know, a, a, a Nero Wolf mystery. I love, I'm a sucker for old mysteries and detective stories. And it looks very serious. Oh, you're doing something on the iPad. You must be, you must be watching a game. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. Totally. <laughs> What's sitting on the night table right now? Do you have a night, nightstand? Night table. I have a nightstand with a pile of books on it. I'm looking at it right now. Um, um, are you in bed right now? No, I'm not in early. bed. No, I'm <laughs> Don't ask me what I'm wearing. Fair enough. Um, I am, so next up is, uh, Americana, the Chimamanda Adichie book, uh, which I think is going to be um, the actor who starred in Selma as Martin oh, Luther King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David, yes. the, the David guy. Yep. Um, he is going to be in the next, uh, in the movie adaptation of this. She wrote Half of the Yellow Sun about four or five years ago, won the Orange Prize. It was amazing. Absolutely incredible. I just love her prose, love her uh, descriptive language, loved her storytelling. Mm. And uh, so this came out a year and a half ago. I don't even think two years ago. And I've been dying to get to it. 
So that's actually next up on the queue. And then I have Cloud Atlas underneath it, which I just finished uh, about a week ago. And it was pretty amazing. I'm still trying to figure out what I think of it. Mm-hmm. Because it's so layered and complex. It's the There's six novellas that are all woven together and interconnected in very strange ways, even though they don't share characters or even a, a time or a setting. And so I've been kind of working through it in my head, trying to think, well, what was he trying to do other than show us that he's very clever? In right. case he succeeded, I will, I will grant him that. This was an exceedingly intelligent work of literature. It's just, all right, so was there a point or was this just for kicks? Yeah. Just Which would be his, fine, his but I want to know. Yeah. You, you asked me if I had read it, and I, and I, uh, I haven't. We, we had a guy on, uh, a friend of mine, this guy Kevin Orkuni, who works at Skylight Books here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which is a great bookstore in Los Feliz. And, uh, and I talked to him about books that were made into movies that have lost their luster because the movies were bad. And he's like, a perfect <laughs> example for that is Cloud Atlas. It's a great book. He loved it, and people loved it. And then the movie came out and sort of the reputation of the story changed and it all of a sudden wow. became this, you know, terrible piece of cinematic garbage and you should avoid it <laughs> at all costs, including the book. But that's not true. That's not the case. It's actually, no, the book's I guess, good. yeah, but wonderful the, book. I, many people have said, don't bother with the movie because it's yeah. six, six stories that each of them in and of themselves could have been, you know, a 70 or 80 minute film. Right. So I don't know how you could do six of them. Um, and in what, a two and a half hour? I mean, people don't really make three hour movies unless it's Harry Potter. So what do you, could you really condense all of these stories? Yeah. You lose so much. And you deal with that there were textual interconnections between the stories that are almost like Easter eggs in the text. And you're never going to get that. Exactly. That movie. won't, uh, you can't transition that to film. There are certain things. No. I think about that all the time. I'm reading a really great book and I imagine the movie, of course, like we all do in our head as we're reading. And there are certain moments mm-hmm. where I think this, you cannot, this will not transfer to in, in a cinematic way. You can't say this with pictures. Right. And, uh, right. and yet people, men and women in this city, spend a lot of time and money trying to do just <laughs> that very thing and fail. That's what kills me is when you, when you find great pros. I mean, some I read books for all different reasons, for plot, for character, because people tell me to read a book, and sometimes I'll say, okay, I'll I'll read the book. And and, uh, then there are some I just read because the prose is so wonderful, and it's the hardest to film. Those are the books I almost Mm -hmm. inside want to – I don't want to see them filmed. No, absolutely. Has that happened to you where you've you've read online, you've heard some news that a a, a book that you love is being made into a movie and it makes you cringe? Because that happens yes. to me all the fucking time. All the time. All, all the, the time. time. Yeah, that, and because I've almost, I'd say 95% of the time where I've read the book and seen the movie, I preferred the book. Of course. There rare exception. Chocolat was an exception. I did not like the book. They made some pretty substantial changes to characters and to tone. And so the movie was light, lighter than the book, but it actually worked a lot better for me. That's the rare, the really rare exception. Right. Like, I keep hearing they're going to try to film The Master and Margarita, which is my favorite novel of all time. Mm. Just don't. Right. You can't do yeah, it. Yeah, don't ruin it. I know. No. They it's, can't it, help there's themselves. There's no upside at Yeah, all. right. You only lose. You're only losing ground. It, yes. it, uh, I'm a huge uh, David Foster Wallace acolyte, and, mm-hmm. and uh, David Lipsky wrote that great book called, uh, although, of course, you end up becoming yourself, about his road trip with David Foster Wallace when um, Infinite Jest was coming out. Mm-hmm. And he wrote an article for Rolling Stone, and then Rolling Stone never ended up 
running it. And But he had all these tapes, these conversations he had with him. And so when he died, he transcribed all the tapes and just like published a book of these conversations. And it was him talking mm -hmm. about uh, pop psychology and music and writing and fame and depression and a million different things, fast food, whatever. And the book, it, it's, it's one of two books that I've finished and then started again immediately with a highlighter. <laughs> wow. And, I'll have to look for this. Oh, it's so good. It's so compelling. If, if you're, have you read Infinite Jest? No, I haven't fin been able to finish it. Okay. I've gotten I did read it because, in part because Michael Shore, Ken Tremendous, for those of you who follow him on Twitter, mm -hmm. the Parks and Rec creator, for a long time, was after me to read that book. He's like, you're going to love the book. I'm like, it's a thousand fucking pages. I'm not yeah. going to read this book. Like, right. I have this terror of books that are that weigh more than my head do. Of course. And it does. And so, sure enough, but eventually I did read it, and actually it's it's amazingly clever. Yeah. Um, kind of like, it's like Cloud Atlas in that respect. This is sort of a, a writer at the absolute top of his craft. Um, yeah. It's hard, though. It is, it's a slog. It's not like Thomas Pinchon hard, but it's, there, it's work to get yeah. through that book. There's a reward, but right. I, when lots of people tell me, I mean, there is a major league club president who grabbed me once at the winter meetings and said, I can't believe you finished that book. So Whoa. very intelligent people have tried and not been able to tackle this book. It's, it is almost a labor of love to read it. Wow. Holy, that's, that's, uh, what team? I can't, I want, I don't know if he would want me to tell you. So I'm He's, he's somebody you would know. This is not a behind the scenes guy. This is, and this is a very intelligent person wow. who did this. And I was sort of flabbergasted because I was sort of like, you could do, of course you can do this. Of course his life is probably insanely busy too, but it's, it's not a question of intelligence or even perseverance, but you have to want to keep plowing forward yeah. because he, you know, as brilliant as Foster Wallace was, he could, I mean, his tangents were epic. Oh yeah. And he didn't where, give a where, fuck. Where are we going? Here? He did yeah, not exactly. care about you at all. And no. he was going to flex his <laughs> muscles. And if he wanted to chase and see all these cool little crevices in the human mind that he was going to show you, then great. But he's not yep. going to slow down for you. No, so exactly. That's, that's and there were parts uh, in there where I'm like, I'm trusting you here. I'm trusting at some point we're going to get back on the highway because <laughs> right. we are like on a dirt road yep. here. And it's like we're in a barn somewhere. Yes. <laughs> I am lost. Where yep. do you get, um, do you have specific places that you go to to get book recommendations? Um, or do you have friends? For years, I was working through some greatest books lists. Like Time Magazine did their 100 greatest novels, and I read through that list. Mm. And um, I'll read, I read the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction winners. I've read like half of all the ones in the history of the award. They're not all great, but it's one of those where for... You know, for every Tinkers, which I thought, or like Olive Kitteridge, I didn't like those. But then I read The Orphan Master's Son, and it was amazing. Or right. Empire Falls, which I think was actually a reader recommendation from years and years ago. And readers recommend a ton of books to me. Oh, I bet. And I bet. So, which I love. And I don't always, obviously I can't read them all, but if I get a wreck and it's not something that I know immediately that I wouldn't like, I will at least give it the, the courtesy of sort of an investigation. Yeah. Find a review, find a description, ask somebody else. I've got friends who are also avid fiction readers. I'm mostly, mostly fiction at least. And, you know, I'll ask, hey, have you read this? What do you think? Would I like, do, might I like this? Yeah. What doesn't, I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, what, what, in terms of books or genres, what doesn't interest you? What turns you off at the, at the get-go and you have to sort of force yourself to dig into it? Yeah, uh, crappy prose, slow prose, like right. really, I, I mean, there's, I am a writer, I'm not a fiction writer, I'm not comparing myself to them, but I think I recognize 
good pros and uh, people who don't have that aptitude with the language. Um, it, there's always a, there's a velocity of pros. There's a velocity of reading pros for me that I've never been able to figure out why I can read because it's not vocabulary related. It's not even length of sentence related, but there's definitely a difference in how quickly I can power through some writers versus certain writers versus other writers. And when the prose is really slow, sort of turgid, swollen, yeah. dense, I mean, then, then those are the books where I'm tempted to put, to just put them away. And I mean, now I do actually, but there was a point where I was the stubborn ass who would just be like, I'm finishing the fucking book. And that now, no, I actually will give up on a book after 30 yeah. or 40 pages. Once I get to a hundred, I feel like I've made the commitment. Now. Absolutely. I'm finish the book. Yeah. yeah. I used to be I don't like, know, do you have a number like that? Like where you're like, I've hit page X. I don't, I'm I, gonna go. I just trust my, I trust my brain. I get to a certain point go. and I say, you know what? No, I, life is too short. There's a great book yes. waiting for me around the corner that That's I can spend. That's the other thing, right? Cause you have a, I have a shelf. Some people have a queue it's, or it's just on the Kindle or whatever. I mean, I have always have books in my Kindle app. Um, if we, especially if I'm ever caught somewhere without a book, which is, you know, disastrous, but also I have a shelf upstairs of, of actual paperback books that I sort of work my way through and I can go look up there and like the next, um, Alan Bradley wrote, wrote the Flavia de Luce mysteries, which are just wonderful. And it's like, mm. I want to get to that and I'm not going to stick with a book that's going to take me a month to finish if it means it's that much longer till I get to see Flavia again. Absolutely. I, I know your your business is baseball, and uh, and I'm sure there are so many great sports books. There are some real terrible duds. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, do you have some favorite sports themed or even baseball themed books that you've read that you've really enjoyed that you would uh, that you would recommend to to my listeners? Sure. Um, you know, I always recommend Moneyball. Moneyball is is a flawed mm. book in some ways, and. Michael Lewis, who I think is one of the, the best prose God, writers so he's got good. in the nonfiction he's side. so and good. His, and his, his velocity of prose is very high. He, like a lot of nonfiction writers, tends to sort of move facts around, conflate facts to improve the narrative. I don't love that, but that does seem to be fairly standard in nonfiction now. And if you want to grasp what the, uh, what the baseball industry is like today, he presaged a lot of these changes, the rise of sabermetrics yeah. uh, with, with the stories, with the inside look he gave you at that Oakland front office. So I always tell people, read that, don't see the movie, just read the book. Yeah, totally. And you'll, you'll get an idea, you'll certainly get an idea of what kind of stuff I was trying to do when I was with Toronto and now what front offices are doing today. Everywhere, um, right? Everywhere. I mean, you've got 20, there's 30 teams and there's probably 27 or 28 that have real analytics departments now, multiple people building data warehouses and helping make more informed decisions. And the amount of data they're getting is going up every year. It's mm. massively increased over what we got. I left the Blue Jays in 2006. And at that point, I could keep a lot of the data in an access database or even just put it onto an Excel spreadsheet for easier formatting and printing. Now it's I mean, you'd need a SQL server, you need an actual database and database programmers to be able to implement this stuff. Holy so cow. Yeah, that's one I always recommend. Um, Lords of the Realm, which has gone in and out of print, but it's mm. by John Hellyar, who co-wrote Barbarians at the Gate. Oh, wow. It's a great book on the history of the industry. So it's from an owner's perspective rather than a player's perspective. Yeah. But it's, re it's funny. It's maddening. I mean, it was run, baseball was run by crazy people for large chunks of its history. Right. And it's really fantastic. Um, 
And what, does, what time it, period like said, is it, does it dig into? It ends at the strike. It goes back to the origins in the 19th century and ends at the 94 strike. Oh, my God. Holy cow. How much is about racism and how terrible... Oh, there's He's a lot about Bill Vec trying to buy the White Sox, was it? No, he was trying to buy the Phillies in the uh, segregated period. And what he was going to do was just stock it with Negro League stars and probably was going to destroy the rest of the National League. Can you imagine if he had done that and if there had been seven white teams in the NL oh and one God. team with all the best black players? I mean, he would have destroyed them. Holy and shit. I cannot – I mean, I – not only do I crave that outcome, that alternate universe outcome from a baseball perspective, but what would the societal reaction? Oh have yeah! Been? Oh my right? God! If it, now that's a move. That is a movie. That is a, that compel- I would, a baseball movie. I would love to see. Absolutely, just, you know, Jackie Robinson and Cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson was probably dead by then. But you know that type of player just yeah. coming in and just pounding. Oh God! The rest of the national. Those league. fans, those home games. Holy shit! Can you imagine? Yeah. Oh, you, they, the crowd wouldn't go for baseball. They just, oh my God, that'd be spectacular. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it would have been like sort of race war yeah. on the baseball field. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about. And he, I mean, he would have done it, but someone, some other owners got wind of his plan and then wow. scotched his attempt to actually buy the team. And wow. it has stories like that. Or Lords. Ted Turner's famous line, gentlemen, we only have the only legal monopoly in the country and we're fucking it up. Yeah, right. Good Lord. Yeah, I mean, it was, oh there's, there's a lot of great, very behind the scenes stories from the, the history of the sport. And I think that was also a book too that exposed to me for the first time what a terrible human being Bowie Kuhn, who of course is in the Hall of Fame, right, was. Yeah. I mean, he was longtime commissioner of baseball for, for listeners who, who don't follow the sport. And he was uh, as anti-player and anti-union and probably as racist as just about anyone they've ever had in that office and really did his best to try to destroy the industry, um, for which he's been since lionized, Things like, something I just don't understand. At yeah. all. He's in the Hall of Fame, and Marvin Miller, the union leader, is not. That right. tells you probably all you need to know about the Hall of Fame. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, have you read Nine Innings, the Dan O'Krent? Yes, That's, the Daniel O'Krent book. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, one of the great. few books... Like a lot of books that try to get on the field don't do a good job of putting you on the field. And I felt like that mm. one did. You felt like you were at yeah. the game. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I completely agree. Did you, did you read Long Ball about the 75 season? No. Long Ball is Who great. That? I, I'll check that out. Ugh, I'm blanking on the name. I should have done more research. but I've read the, jo- the Joe Posnanski book on the big red machine. Oh, yeah. Very good. Posnanski's yeah. great. Yeah. The, the soul of baseball is his best, where it's... It's a baseball book, but it's not really a baseball book. It's more him and Buck O'Neill traveling around mm. the country and it, grabbing not just baseball stories, but, but human stories. Like yeah. finding out, you know, Willie Mays, not a happy guy. And known as the Say Hey Kid, you sort of have this artificial picture of him as this wonderful, happy-go-lucky kid. And, it, and no, it hasn't been at all for him. Right. Um, and to find out things like that, personalities, real, real characters behind the, the players mm. we saw on the field, that to me was... That's what Joe does really well as a writer, and that book in particular captured it. Yeah. I, read, I think my favorite book that I've read in the last five years has been The, the Art of Fielding. Have you read uh, The Art of Fielding? No. People ask me all the time, and I'm like, I don't know if baseball novel could I, – I, I have a, like a mental block against it. I feel like a baseball novel is going to let me down. I've had publishers send me some other 
baseball novels, and I've never finished one because they never do the baseball justice. I hesitate to even say that it's a book about baseball, but mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, – I mean, and baseball play is, is a theme in the book for sure, but it's really okay. about um, – it's a small Midwestern university and, and the – very human beings who live and work there and uh, not being able to fulfill promises and finding their true selves. Baseball plays a part, but it certainly mm-hmm. isn't the starring figure in the book. It's Have you read Richard Rousseau? He was Empire Falls, Nobody's Fool. Em- yeah, em- that- uh, Empire Falls I have read, but that's I that's, haven't read. Uh, you're, that's what your description is reminding me of. Like his are always small, usually failing New England factory town love it a lot of people not i know right that's my that is my jam that's my favorite shit (laughs) i I, I can't get enough of that like that whole like you you pick up one of his books and it's like you know some of these characters are going to depress the hell out oh yeah because it's a lot of middle-aged people who have who are coming to terms with what they failed to do exactly yep you know that's fodder for great literature it's not necessarily most uplifting experience thank god russo is funny because otherwise those could be horrible books right I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to generalize and assume that uh, a majority of your coworkers in Bristol um, and ESPN aren't as well read. Um, that place is loaded with usually, um, I'm guessing, conservative former athletes. Uh, are there people at ESPN you can have reasonable conversations with about books? Yeah, they, they come out of the woodwork. It's never – so I've learned, you know, because I've worked with such diverse people over the over, – really over my working life – you never know who the bookworms are, and often they're not terribly vocal about it. I, right. it you know, I don't, I don't care. Like, so I'm a, I'm a bookworm and a food lover and a board game geek, and I don't care if anybody knows. But yeah. like a lot of people don't want. I'm, I don't want to be the egghead with the book in his hand. Whatever, I got a right. book, one in my hand, three on my Kindle, and one in my back pocket. I don't care what you think. But, right. So people will say. I mean, there were there have been times where I've been in a remote studio and on camera, and you know, you get the IFB in, and you're waiting to hear something from the producer, and all of a sudden, the first thing I'll hear is, "So, what are you reading?" Because they'll see I've got something in my hand. They can see I'm looking down, reading something, and you just never know who the book were. I remember having a conversation with a producer once about Jane Eyre. Turned out it was her favorite book, and I had just read Jasper Ford's The Air Affair, which sort of is a takeoff on. Uh, on the air affair, on Jan Air and a bunch of other uh, works of classic literature. So mm. they're there. They're just sort of scattered. But we so tend to find each other. Probably in part because I'm always, I'm the, the vocal book. Right. So there's so many men and women at ESPN who may read, but because they're so used to that sort of clubhouse mentality where you can't, you have to be sort of macho and tough and cool and not show your brain that it takes a little effort to find out who is reading and who isn't. Is that the gist they, of it? Well, I, they find me, certainly. Right. They're, you know, people who know, just like people who know food. And I've had coworker, uh, former player coworkers who've said to me, oh, have you tried this restaurant? Or have you been there? Oh, I saw your, what you wrote about this place. I love that restaurant. So there's always, there's going to be some common ground. That's been good for me too. Cause I sit next to like Mark Mulder, super successful Major League Baseball player. He's like 6'4". He's ridiculously good-looking. Right. He's, you know, it's like, don't, don't sit me next to him. Can you just put him on the other side of the studio? <laughs> and yet, he lives in Arizona. I used to live fairly close to him. And so we've talked about some favorite restaurants there. And so that's the fact that I never played and he had a successful Major League career could be an unbridgeable chasm between us. But yeah. one thing I've learned about sort of having a lot of weird random interests is 
I'm probably going to click with someone, with any person on something. We got to have something in common. Usually it's food because you got to eat. Yeah, right? of course. It seems to be fairly fundamental. Is that a common? But often it's, Sorry, it's, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going to say sometimes it's books. Occasionally it's a TV show. You can always talk about The Wire. You want to you work at ESPN? Yeah, yeah, right. Watch, watch all five seasons of The Wire. <laughs> right. So it'll be great for right. your interview. That's great. Yeah. That's really funny. I know that you're a serious, hardcore foodie, and I want to, I want to put you... I want to challenge you here. The, the, mm-hmm. the, I'm not going to ask you like the best meal you've ever had in your life, but I want to, I want to go by category. Okay. And I want to, like, you give me the best place in this specific category. Okay. Okay. Yep. The best pizza you've ever had. Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix. Yes. And I've had some great yes! pizza, but that place is awesome. The night before, I went to the Super Bowl this year, and the night before the Super oh, Bowl, nice. I went yep. to the one in like the on the strip mall, sort of like outside of downtown. Yes. We okay, got town we, and country complex. I know yeah, exactly where that is. We yeah. got there at 5 PM and yep. we waited 10 minutes. And then within 25 yeah. minutes, there was 50 people out, yep. including two GMs that I recognized from hard knocks on uh, uh, NFL GMs. <laughs> I was like, ah, I'm sitting here standing. Go fuck yourself. That place is fantastic. Unbelievable. And Chris, if you've ever, I met Chris Bianco once. He is the most unassuming chef superstar you will ever meet in your life. Oh, that it's place. Like, is amazing. I'm so the glad that you said great. that. Pastas are great. He 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 used to hand pull all the mozzarella himself. He was like a control freak for a while, and now they've expanded a little bit, so he's less actually hands on every dish. But still, the quality control Ugh. is unbelievable. What is the uh, the best the best breakfast? The best bre- if you had, when you dream about great breakfasts, where does yeah, it come from? So I, and I do, I do actually yeah. dream about great Don't breakfasts all. all the time. Um, God, there is a place actually in LA called Square One that oh, does a wow. poached, a Benedict with a poached egg yeah. on tea cured salmon and a potato pancake. I can't go to LA without going there for that. Fucking I it. love that. That's I not far from about where, that. Yeah, yeah for that a, place is amazing. It's great. Square One is it's fantastic. Right by the, and then you can laugh at the Scientology building. Yes. Yeah. yeah, all the Scientologists who are in trouble, who wear the, the blue suits and have to pick up garbage around the, yeah. the grounds. <laughs> the best. Are you clear? Are you clear? Everybody, yes. Everybody here clear? No one is clear. Uh, no one is clear. The best steak that you've had. Ooh. That's a good one. Because I'm not usually a steak guy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, Neither am I. No, because, you know, it's funny. I went to the they, Blue Jays did a group dinner at a Capitol Grill, and I got swordfish, and it was the best swordfish I'd ever had in my life. But I have an answer now. Oh, Craft wow. steak in Vegas. Been there twice. First time I was there with a group, another Blue Jay group dinner, so there were like 20 people. So I got to try everything. And oh, nice. That was probably the best steak I've ever had, but it was the short rib that I came back for. The 24-hour short rib. That was oh, wow. unbelievable. So I went, went back like five years later. I'm like, don't even bother with the menu, dude. I, I, I got this. That wasn't at the place with the three letters. Do you remember the name of the spot? The Vegas? The, the, it's in the MGM Grand Hotel. Holy shit. Craft Steak. It's Tom Colicchio's, the yeah, top K- chef guy. Yeah, R- KFT place. or KRF or something? See, it's just craft, all lowercase, C-R-A-F-T steak. I feel like that's it's, the same place that I had the greatest steak in my life in it, as well. It's amazing. We're on a yeah, roll. He's, it's one of those two where I was like, one of those places where I was like, okay, you, you get to be the top chef guy because I've had your food and it's amazing. And it's fantastic. Do you have a, yeah. uh, a best taco? Best tacos I've ever had have always been like random places in California. 
like yep. and pla- places I never get back to. I go to San Diego and somebody says, oh, go to this. God, where I drove 10 minutes south of San Diego, which I was actually convinced 10 minutes south of San Diego actually put you in Mexico. Right. Apparently not. <laughs> and I got off the highway and nobody spoke English and I went in. There were no choices, but the but they were amazing. I wish I could remember the name of it. But those are the experiences I tend to remember about Certainly. Tacos, that it's like, that's something you should probably be paying like $2 a piece for. I've yeah. been to a good place. Like Phoenix had a ton of great taco places. I'd go to Barrio Queen, Barrio Cafe. They would do like little, you know, you could order, they'd give you like a sushi menu of tacos yeah. and you could keep picking them. They're always amazing, but there's something about finding that like random taco spot where this is probably grandma's recipe. Yeah, so absolutely. Those are the ones I always come back to. And it's it's LA or San Diego for me, always. Yeah, I, when I lived in New York for a long time, the, the Mexican food was really Dominican food or Puerto Rican food. It wasn't yep. proper Mexican food. And when I moved right. to Los Angeles, I had Mexican food, proper Mexican food for the first time, and it changed my Have life. you been to Roy Choi's uh, places, the food trucks? No. Out there, the, he's the Korean tacos, right? Like, yes. That's one of the ones, I have my list of places I want to get to. Is my, he the Kogi? My LA list is probably really long because I'm never out there long enough and you have too many good places to eat. Yeah, yeah, we're very lucky out here, for You're sure. very spoiled. There's yeah. a lot of money and a lot of people willing to spend money on good food, so. Yeah, have you, have you been works. to Have you been to Moza? No. Oh, okay. Next time you're in town, we should go to Moza because that place okay. will that'll it's a date. blow your hair back. Um, that works. So you got into this really great, you, your Twitter account was suspended by ESPN, which it's just this fascinating story that I'm fucking, it just blows my mind. Infamous, infamous Red Sox hero and conservative blowhard, Kurt Schilling is not a fan of evolution. And you are a fan of evolution. And you guys engage in a, in a, in a very passionate debate on Twitter and ESPN decided to suspend the account. How, how come? Um, there's very little I can say about that publicly. Uh, mm. And I can say that I was, they asked me to stay off Twitter for five days, I think. And right. then I came back and it was over and they haven't said anything about it since. Let me ask you this. Um, Have you seen yeah. Chilling in person since? Oh, many times. Oh, and, okay. I mean, if there's personal, put it this way. I, as far as I'm concerned, he and I are fine. He and I were always fine. Yeah. We disagree on this. We disagree on a lot of things. He's very conservative politically. I'm more of a sort of libertarian-leaning progressive type. So we're not going to agree on a lot of stuff. And we will argue. We'll sit in the green room, and every once in a while we'll argue politics. He's not an Obama fan. And I wouldn't say I'm like rah-rah Obama necessarily, but I agree with many of his policies. So we'll go – we'll have a good back and forth. I, I totally enjoy that. And yeah. I, I think on a personal level, if Chris – if Chris, if Kurt has something, has animus against me, he's never expressed it personally. He's never shown it. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, he and I are, are good and you will probably see us on TV together and we'll probably spar again over something because we both like it. Like he's kind of feisty about stuff and I yeah. am too. And I, I like, I like going back and forth. I like the, you know, I like talking science. I love science. I was a science geek when I was a kid. Right. So you want, you want to talk science? Like to me, evolution, it's no question. This is over. This is, this is like gravity. It is. It's proven theory at this point. Right. So I'm happy to, to stand up and defend it because I like that stuff. I love learning about that stuff. What about Lou Holtz? Does he believe in evolution? I have met Lou Holtz once. I ran into the football guys I almost never see. Oh, um, okay. And Lou came in. It's like when PJ Carlesimo comes in. He is like a hurricane into the green room. <laughs> and he's ta- he talks and he's loud and he's swearing and it's fast and then he leaves and i'm like what the heck just happened like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, 
I, I don't even know what he was talking about, right. but I, but it was funny. Like I laughed. Right. I'm not sure if I got all the jokes. But he is but a hurricane. Yeah, it is. It's like that. So a lot of the football guys are they'll they'll pop in and out, and it's quick, and it's almost like. I mean, you, you'll understand this having done TV. When the red light's on, you change a little bit. Maybe Absolutely. a lot, but you, you're – and it's some people don't turn it off right away. When, the light, when we're done with a show, I'm ready for bed. I'm freaking exhausted. Yeah, absolutely. But some people are still kind of amped up and bouncing up and down. They're still in TV mode, and I get it. Some people can't calm down as quickly, and everyone's going to have their own way of reducing the adrenaline high. Yeah. And uh, so – you know, so that's what I think a lot of the football guys come in and they're still like amped up from the show. And so I, you know, I kind of enjoy it almost as a spectator. Yeah. I like to see them come in and be crazy and funny and loud and whatever. It doesn't yeah. bother me. Some guys may not react the same way, but I like it. I'll, I'll get you out of here on this. I'm sure you've, you've had a lot of opportunities to work in front offices around baseball. And what, what keeps you doing your thing at ESPN as opposed to moving to a, a front office somewhere? The biggest thing for me has always been family. When I left the Blue Jays, um, I'll tell you, some listeners may have heard it before, but I'll tell you because I don't think I've told you the story. I accepted the offer from ESPN. I was still with the Blue Jays and accepted the offer to go to ESPN. It was a Thursday about 5, 5.30 in the evening in May of 2006. At 5.30 the next morning, my wife's water broke. And so wow. I called ESPN. It's like, it's going to be a little while a little busy right now, and became a father for the first time, and 12 days later, then actually started the job at ESPN. And part of why I wanted to leave the Blue Jays, I didn't like the direction there. I didn't think this was the right fit for me. I didn't sort of agree with my boss's philosophy on players. There was a lot of reasons to get out, but also I wanted control over my schedule, control over my travel. And I've been very fortunate in that I've had that. I travel less than your typical scout, your national cross-checker, your scouting director. They have more nights a year on the road than I do. And so I work a lot, but it's a lot of work at home where I'm writing, making phone calls. And my daughter is now going to be nine, which I find very hard to believe, but I, she still wants me around, so I'm still going to be around. Eventually, she'll reach that teenage point. So, you know, dad, when that happens, maybe I'll travel a little bit more or I'll be open to it. But for now, the priority is to be home as much as I possibly can. And I've been lucky and I work with good people who've made that possibility. And I know going to, going to be a full-time scout in any role would diminish that. And I've had offers to go back on the team side and I've looked at it. So that's just going to be more nights out of the house. And I don't want to do that. Not while my daughter is an age where she still wants me around and I think still needs me around. Keith Law is a senior baseball writer at ESPN. He knows more about baseball and food and books and music than I do for sure. Um, maybe not you, listener, but he knows a hell of a lot more, more about that stuff than I do. And uh, his, his blog is at meadowparty.com, meadowparty. You can check out his musings on all those things. Keith, what a blast. Thanks so much for coming in. This was so much fun. Yeah, likewise. I'm glad we could do it. Is Pedroia going to hit more than 24 home runs? I will bet the under on that. Oh, you fucking... Bizarre New World is this incredible new graphic novel that I got my hands on. It is so fucking cool. It's about a guy. His name is Paul Crutcher. He's an ordinary schlep, okay? And he's the world's first flying man. 
Unfortunately, his status as the only flyer is short-lived when soon the entire human race joins him in the sky and the whole world changes. It's this incredible graphic novel. It's, uh, it's similar in tone to like Back to the Future. It's a fun sort of comedy fantasy, but it's grounded. There, there are no superheroes or capes or aliens or genies and lamps, that kind of thing. It's this beautiful 278-page graphic novel, and it'll have you hooked from beginning to end. And there's a Kickstarter going on right now, so search for Bizarre New World at kickstarter.com and help them make it. And if they get it successfully funded, you'll be able to get it digitally or in paperback. So you can visit bizarrenewworld.com, that's B-I-Z-A-R-R-E, newworld.com, for more info. Check it out. It's Act 3 of Reading Aloud. Uh, we've heard from Faye Wolf. We've listened to Keith Law talk about baseball and pizza. And now we are at Act 3 of Reading Aloud, where we read something a little bit heavier. This uh, came to my brain because I saw on the news that it was the 40, I think 40th anniversary of the fall of Saigon. There was this unbelievable documentary. Uh, I, I, I wish I knew what the name of it. I'm blanking on it now, but it's on Netflix. It was nominated for uh, an Academy Award this year. And uh, I was thinking of it because I watched this documentary, and it's really amazing and heartbreaking about the last day where, like, the last helicopter flew off of the American embassy in Saigon, and then it was taken over by the by the North Vietnamese and turned into a socialist country, a communist uh, country. And I think about, I'm fascinated with Vietnam for a lot of reasons, but mostly because my dad fought in Vietnam. And it's something I'm really proud of. Uh, I think about it all, I think about it all the time. I don't even know if he knows this, but I think about it a lot and I'm proud of what he did. And he has some crazy stories and an unbelievable story about how he, was drafted and how he ended up in the engineering corps and and what he did over there and what his Christmas was like. Anyway, he he has some amazing stories and and I'm so I'm drawn to the Vietnam War and the whole experience because of my dad. And when I saw on the news that this was the uh, uh, 40-year anniversary, I thought, well, maybe there's something to read that's Vietnam-related. And of course, I went immediately to the things they carried, which is this stunning Tim O'Brien book. I bet you've read it. And if you haven't read it in college or high school, you were supposed to read it, but you didn't. So shame on you. Go back and read it. It came out in 1990, and it's a collection of short stories. Um, They're semi-autobiographical. Tim O'Brien was in Vietnam himself, and he was like a grunt, uh, and he saw some horrible things. He's just a fascinating guy, and he's written some unbelievable books. Uh, In the Lake of the Woods is one of my favorite books. That came out in 1994. That book is great. Um, So let's read a brief passage. This is towards the end of the book when he goes back to Vietnam uh, after 20 years later uh, with his young daughter. They go on this trip together to Vietnam and he wants to go back to the place where his best friend was killed and to sort of reflect on where he is. And it's a beautiful passage. And because I love it so much, I've been doing this a lot. I really like the passages that I select and I want to read them. So I'm going to do that for next week as well. But uh, this week I'm going to be reading a passage from Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. Here's me. 
Field Trip A few months after completing In the Field, I returned with my daughter to Vietnam, where we visited the site of Kiowa's death and where I looked for signs of forgiveness or personal grace or whatever else the land might offer. The field was still there, though none as I remembered it. Much smaller, I thought, and not nearly so menacing. And in the bright sunlight, it was hard to picture what had happened on this ground some 20 years ago. Except for a few marshy spots along the river, everything was bone dry. No ghosts, just a flat, grassy field. The place was at peace. There were yellow butterflies. There was a breeze and a wide blue sky. Along the river, two old farmers stood in ankle-deep water, repairing the same narrow dike where we had laid out Kiowa's body after pulling him from the muck. Things were quiet. At one point, I remember... One of the farmers looked up and shaded his eyes, staring across the field at us. Then, after a time, he wiped his forehead and went back to work. I stood with my arms folded, feeling the grip of sentiment and time. Amazing, I thought. Twenty years. Behind me in the jeep, my daughter Kathleen sat waiting with a government interpreter, and now and then I could hear the two of them talking in soft voices. They were already fast friends. Neither of them, I think, understood what all this was about, why I'd insisted that we search out this spot. It had been a hard two-hour ride from Quanang City, bumpy dirt roads and a hot August sun, ending up at an empty field on the edge of nowhere. I took out my camera, snapped a couple of pictures, then stood gazing out at the field. After a time, Kathleen got out of the Jeep and stood beside me. You know what I think, she said? I think this place stinks. It smells like, God, I don't even know what. It smells rotten. It sure does. I know that. So when can we go? Pretty soon, I said. She started to say something, but then hesitated. Frowning, she squinted out at the Jeep for a second, then shrugged and walked back to the Jeep. Kathleen had just turned 10, and this trip was a kind of birthday present, showing her the world, offering a small piece of her father's history. For the most part, she'd held up well, far better than I, and over the first two weeks, she'd trooped along without complaint as we hit the obligatory tourist stops, Ho Chi Minh's mausoleum in Hanoi, a model farm outside Saigon, the tunnels of Kuchi, the monuments and government offices and orphanages. Through most of this, Kathleen had seemed to enjoy the foreignness of it all, the exotic food and animals, and even during those periods of boredom and discomfort, She'd kept up a good-humored tolerance. At the same time, however, she seemed a bit puzzled. The war was as remote to her as cavemen and dinosaurs. One morning in Saigon, she'd asked what it was all about. This whole war, she asked. Why was everybody so mad at everybody else? I shook my head. They weren't mad, exactly. Some people wanted one thing. Other people wanted another thing. What did you want? Nothing, I said, to stay alive. That's all? Yes. Kathleen sighed. Well, I don't get it. I mean, how come you were even here in the first place? I don't know, I said, because I had to be. But why? I tried to find something to tell her, but finally I shrugged and said, it's a mystery, I guess. I don't know. For the rest of the day, she was very quiet. That night, though, just before bedtime, Kathleen put her hand on my shoulder and said, you know something? Sometimes you're pretty weird, aren't you? Well, no, I said. You are too. She pulled her hand away and frowned at me. Like coming over here. 
Some dumb thing happens a long time ago and you can't ever forget it. And that's bad? No, she said quietly. That's weird. In the second week of August, near the end of our stay, I arranged for the side trip to Quan Gai. The tourist stuff was fine, but from the start, I'd wanted to take my daughter to the places I'd seen as a soldier. I wanted to show her the Vietnam that kept me awake at night. A shady trail outside the village of Mai Kay, a filthy old pigsty at the Bantagan Peninsula. Our time was short, however. Our choices had to be made. In the end, I decided to take her to this piece of ground where my friend Kiowa had died. It seemed appropriate, and besides, I had business here. Now, looking out at the field, I wondered if it was all a mistake. Everything was too ordinary. A quiet, sunny day, and the field was not the field I remembered. I, I pictured Kiowa's face, the way he used to smile, but all I felt was the awkwardness of remembering. Behind me, Kathleen let a little giggle. The interpreter was showing her magic tricks. There were birds and butterflies, the soft rustlings of rural anywhere. Below in the earth, the relics of our presence were no doubt still there. The canteens and bandoliers and mess kits. This little field, I thought, had swallowed so much. My best friend, my pride, my belief in myself as a man of some small dignity and courage. Still, it was hard to find any real emotion. It simply wasn't there. After that long night in the rain, I'd, I'd seemed to grow cold inside. All the illusions gone, all the old ambitions and hopes for myself sucked away into the mud. Over the years, that coldness had never entirely disappeared. There were times in my life when I couldn't feel much, not sadness or pity or passion, and somehow I blamed this place for what I had become. And I blamed it for taking away the person I'd once been. For 20 years, this field had embodied all the waste that was Vietnam, all the vulgarity and horror. Now it was just what it was, flat and dreary and unremarkable. I walked up toward the river trying to pick up specific landmarks, but all I recognized was a small rise where Jimmy Cross had set up his command post that night. Nothing else. For a while, I watched the two old farmers working under the hot sun. I took a few more photographs, waved at the farmers, then turned and moved back to the jeep. Kathleen gave me a little nod. Well, she said, hope you're having fun. Sure. Can we go now? In a minute, I said, just relax. At the back of the jeep, I found the small cloth bundle I'd carried over from the States. Kathleen's eyes narrowed. What's that? Stuff, I told her. She glanced at the bundle again, then hopped out of the jeep and followed me back to the field. We walked past Jimmy Cross's command post, past the spot where Kiowa had gone under, down to where the field dipped into the marshland along the river. I took off my shoes and socks. Okay, Kathleen said, what's going on? A quick swim. Where? Right here, I said. Stay put. She watched me unwrap the cloth bundle. Inside were Kiowa's old moccasins. I stripped down to my underwear, took off my wristwatch, and waded in. The water was warm against my feet. Instantly, I recognized the soft, fat feel of the bottom. The water here was eight inches deep. Kathleen seemed nervous. She squinted at me, her hands fluttering. Listen, this is stupid, she said. You can't even hardly get wet. How can you swim out there? I'll manage. But it's not, I mean, God, it's not even water. It's like mush or something. 
She pinched her nose and watched me wade out to where the water reached my knees. Roughly here, I decided, was where Mitchell Sanders had found Kiowa's rucksack. I eased myself down, squatting at first, then sitting. There was again that sense of recognition. The water rose to mid-chest, a green, deepish brown, almost hot. Small water bugs skipped along the surface. Right here, I thought. Leaning forward, I reached in with the moccasins and wedged them into the soft bottom, letting them slide away. Tiny bubbles broke along the surface. I tried to think of something decent to say, something meaningful and right, but nothing came to me. I looked down into the field. Well, I finally managed. There it is. My voice surprised me. It had a rough, chalky sound, full of things I did not know were there. I wanted to tell Kiowa that he'd been a great friend, the very best, but all I could do was slap hands with the water. The sun made me squint. Twenty years. A lot like yesterday, a lot like never. In a way, maybe I'd gone under with Kiowa, and now, after two decades, I'd finally worked my way out. A hot afternoon, a bright August sun, and the war was over. For a few moments, I could not bring myself to move. Like waking from a summer nap, feeling lazy and sluggish, the world collecting itself around me. Fifty meters up the field, one of the old farmers stood watching from along the dike. The man's face was dark and solemn. As we stared at each other, neither of us moving, I felt something go shut in my heart while something else swung open. Briefly, I wondered if the old man might walk over to exchange a few war stories, but instead he picked up a shovel and raised it over his head and held it there for a time, grimly, like a flag. Then he brought the shovel down and said something to his friend and began digging into the hard, dry ground. I stood up and waded out of the water. What a mess, Kathleen said. All that gunk on your skin, you look like... Wait till I tell Mommy. She'll probably make you sleep in the garage. You're right, I said. Don't tell her. I pulled on my shoes, took my daughter's hand, and led her across the field toward the Jeep. Soft heat waves shimmied up out of the earth. When we reached the Jeep, Kathleen turned and glanced out at the field. That old man, she said. Is he mad at you or something? I hope not. He looks mad. No, I said. All that's finished. That was me. Uh, thanks for listening. I love that book. I, I read it when I was a freshman in college. I had these core liberal arts co uh, classes that I had to take my freshman year, and this was the first book. I bought this book when I was, before I was, uh, while I was shopping for books, when, before I, classes started, and, and I actually read it. I wasn't really into reading books back in freshman, sophomore year in college, but I read this one, and it's great. It's so moving, and he's just, uh, he's a special talent. There's a reason that this book is read in high schools and colleges across America because it's really moving. Um, so thanks, Tim O'Brien, for writing an amazing story. Uh, that's our show. A couple of reminders. There's a new book club coming up, Toni Morrison. I mean, come on. If you can't get up for Toni Morrison, I, I can't help you. God Help the Child, which is her newest novel. It just came out. It's getting unbelievable reviews. Four stars on Amazon. Don't buy it on Amazon. Go to your local bookstore and buy it because they need the cash. God Help the Child, Toni Morrison. Read that and we'll talk about it in the third week of May. 
But before then, if you're in Los Angeles, come down to the UCB Theater on Franklin and see us perform Reading Aloud live. Sunday, May 10th, 7.30, five bucks, come check it out. Uh, have a great weekend, and I will see you next week with more Reading Aloud. Goodbye. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane! Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.